And as you turn in your Bibles to the fifth chapter of Romans, I want you to think about this question. Who are the people in your life that you would die for? Who are the people in your life that you would die for, that you would sacrifice your life so that they could live? Who would you stand in between them and danger? Who are those people in your life? Consider that. What type of people are they? Are they probably your family, your close friends, your spouse? Or are they your enemies? Are they wicked people? Are they people deserving of death? So as we turn to uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11 tonight, we're going to be looking at God's answer to that question. Jesus' answer to that question. Who are the people in your life that you would die for? And Jesus' answer to that question is the ungodly my enemies, those who would have me dead. Those are who I would die for. And it's a shocking message. It really is. A lot of us have grown up in the church. We've grown up in the Bible Belt, and we're used to the message of Jesus loving sinners and giving his life on the cross for sinners. But really think about the shock of that, that Jesus would die not just for ungodly people, for wicked people, but ungodly, wicked people who hate him and want him dead, wish that he didn't exist. Those are the kind of people that Jesus died for, and those are the kind of people that we are, right? And so we are right where we need to be to sit under this teaching of the word tonight, to understand who we are, who Christ is, and really to magnify the love of God. The love of God is a, another one of those Christian cliche topics that we talk about. God is love. Um, God is loving. My religion is love. But do we really ponder about the depth of God's love displayed for us in the cross? And that's what we're going to do tonight. So the title of my sermon tonight is, Who Would Die for an Enemy? Who would die for an enemy? And hold your breath, guys. You're not going to believe this. The sermon only has two points. Whoa. Two points. But the second point has like five subpoints. So <laughs> two points. Number one, God's love for sinners. God's love for sinners. We'll see that in verses six through eight. And then the second is the fruit of Christ's death or the fruit of God's love because those two things go hand in hand. The fruit of Christ's death and the love of God for sinners. So first, um, let's read the passage together. Uh, let's stand together to honor the reading of the word. This is a, a habit we need to get into. Because think about this. Something as significant is happening right in this moment. You're about to do th something that literally millions and billions of people in this world never have the opportunity to do, have never had the opportunity to do, and many upon many of them will never have the opportunity to do in their lifetime. And that is to hear the word of God proclaimed over them in a language that they can understand speaking into their life. So this is a great privilege that we have and we honor God by standing for the reading of his word and we give thanks. So with that said, let's receive it eagerly. Verse six, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we ask that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we come to your word tonight, that we would uh, rejoice with great joy before you in light of the, the glory of the gospel displayed in your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. 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 You can be seated. 
So as I said, our, our two points, sort of where we're headed, God's love for sinners and the fruit of Christ's death. So the first thing we want to consider is God's love for sinners. Remember where we have been in Romans. So we're in the context, and this is the world that we live in, by the way. We're in a context of a fallen world upon which the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven. In which the judgment of a holy God is inevitable. And in that we have all fallen short of his glory and deserve his eternal condemnation. So in that context, the world that we live in and that we know, how can we then say that God loves us? How can we say that God loves us? How does God prove it? How does God prove that he loves us? Well, he sent his son. Christ died. And this passage is about how God demonstrates his love towards us, how he proves it. And the resounding answer in this passage and in many others is Christ died for us. That's how we know God loves us. What's the most famous Bible verse? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. That so there is not a so of intensity, it's a so of manner. You know, here's what I mean by that. Not God so loved the world in the same way that you so love tacos. It's not an intensity of love, it's a manner of love. This is how God loves the world, is the way it's intended. Like so, if you've ever watched the cooking channel, like so, like so, God loves the world that he gave his only son. That's how he loves the world, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so we know this. We understand that Jesus, or that, that God sends his son in the person of Jesus Christ into the world to save the world, to show his love for the world, right? This is elementary, we know this. But although it's elementary, it's still wonderful. It's still something that we need to step back and marvel at God to the, at the depths of his love for us. And so in order to appreciate this love of God, we kind of need to stop and consider who it is that died, who it is that died for us. So if God shows his love for us by the fact that his son Jesus died for us, who is Jesus? Who is Christ? So first, the word Christ is a Jesus' title. It's the anointed Messiah, the, the king of Israel who would inherit the nations in the fullness of time, long promised throughout all of redemptive history. So he's this great and glorious king to be received with praise and honor. Yet that's not how he was received. He was treated as a criminal, as a blasphemer, as a liar, as a fraud. He's sinless, spotless. You know, I, I think I talked to you guys about this before, about how we're talking about uh, with our boys about how Jesus being sinless and they just blew their minds that, that he made it through childhood without ever disobeying his parents because that's impossible for them. But Jesus went his entire life sinless, perfect. But that's not how he was treated. He was treated as a criminal, as a sinner. He who knew no sin became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. He didn't deserve the suffering. Think about this. We're just kind of coming out of a cold season. Who's had a cold in like the last six months? Right? Think about how miserable a basic cold is. Jesus suffered through colds. He suffered through weakness and sickness. We think about the sufferings of Christ. We think about his beatings upon and the, his crucifixion. And those are, you know, the, the intense sufferings upon the cross. But there is a reality of ordinary, daily, fallen suffering that he experienced just like you and I. Of loss, of death, sadness, colds. Right? He didn't deserve any of that. Those are the consequences of sin. He was not a sinner, but he endured it. Why? Because he loved us. He loved his people. And he knew that if he defiled himself with sin, that he would not be a suitable savior. Now we could get into the deep theology about Christ being impeccable and not actually possible for him to sin because of his uh, two natures. Uh, but here's the point. Jesus 
pursued obediently to the Father through much suffering to show his love for us. So he, was the, uh, he is the anointed Messiah, King of Israel. He was a sinless son, and he's the eternal son of God. So he wasn't just some rabbi. He wasn't some really spiritual, really um, disciplined, moral person who was able to live righteously and have all these moral principles to live by. No, he was God incarnate, God in the flesh. So you understand when the Bible speaks of Jesus being the son of God, it's not speaking of, of him as being a son in the sense that he was created that he's the offspring in the same way that we all came into existence through a mother and father. The Son of God didn't come into existence at any point. The old, the old creed says that he was begotten, not made, because begotten, the word begotten um, communicates sharing of the same essence. So humans beget humans. Uh, you know, dogs beget dogs, horses beget horses, birds beget Birds, we share the same essence. So the father begets the son, and that is just a human way of saying that the son is of the same essence of the father. He is divine. He is God. Everything that is possible to be God, the son is and has always been and will always be. And so you think about the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the second person of the Trinity, the son exists eternally in bliss, in peace, in harmony, and happiness. Do you think about God as being happy? Do you think about God as being happy? Is that like one of the first things that comes to your mind when you think of God? I would be interested. Do you think of God as being happy or grumpy? What's your, your first instinct? Happy or grumpy? Happy? Grumpy. Okay, we've got some honest people in here. I, sometimes my default instance is to think of God as a grumpy person. Used to, not anymore. The Lord has sanctified me. But what I mean by that is he is out to take away your fun. He's out to pounce on you every time you mess up, right? He's, he's the old man that's like, get off my lawn. That's God. I've got this beautiful world and you messed it up. Get, get away, get away. But that's not God. God is eternally happy, perfect. And the son has experienced this forever. And then we see uh, this in the scripture where, where he sets this aside. Not that he loses it, but he, he sets aside these divine prerogatives in order to take the form of a servant. He doesn't count this equality of God as something to be held on to at all costs. But instead he veils himself, he empties himself, takes on the form of a servant, of a, of a human form and being found in human form he became obedient even obedient to the point of death on a cross and so when we consider that who it is that died it, it is the Christ the sinless eternal son of God in human form he died for you and I for all those who believe in him he gave his life of suffering for us that we might be saved and so this is a proof to us that God loves us. If you're ever tempted to doubt that God loves you, you look to the cross. You look to your son. You don't look to your circumstances. That's what we do. We look to our situation. We go, I'm suffering right now. Things aren't going my way. One thing after another keeps piling up. That means God is out to get me or he doesn't exist or name the list and go down. We judge the love of God for us by the cross. And here's something, this is a side note, this is not on my notes, this is one of those invisible points I was talking about. How, when I say that, you look to the cross, how many of you say, but did that really happen? How, like, how do we know that actually happened? That a man named Jesus existed and that he was nailed to a Roman cross? Do you know that, that we have more historic evidence and reason, every reason to believe that Jesus of Nazareth was a real person who died on a real Roman cross under Pontius Pilate that, than we know about any historic figure? If we don't have enough information to know that Jesus existed, then we don't have enough information to know that any ancient teacher ever existed. 
We have more information, early information from Jesus and his followers than we do of Plato, Aristotle, any of the great teachers that you're learning about in this university. If we can't have enough certainty that Jesus of Nazareth existed and died upon a cross, then we can't know any history that they're teaching here. So how, I want to say that to have some confidence because when I was your age, I would have been sitting here and heard a preacher say that, look to the cross, and I'm going, yeah, but did that really happen? Or is that just like a tradition or a myth that you're talking about? No, it really happened. It really happened and it changed history. And we have proof of that um, in history. And so we don't question God's love for us based upon our circumstances, because as we said last week, sometimes our difficult circumstances are an act of God's love towards us. Actually, they always are, <laughs> not just sometimes, right? So we look to the death of his son. So when we've considered who it is who died and why he died, this passage makes um, some emphasis on the timing of his death, the timing of his death. What does it say? It says, at the right time at the right time. So what makes, it, what makes it the right time? Well, it gives a few different reasons. One, it says, for while we were still weak, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for us. We were weak. We were morally and spiritually in bondage, unable to please God. Have you felt like you want to be a good person? You, you want to do the right thing? You want to be the kind of person that you think your friend is? Or maybe your grandma is? Or, and you want to be that kind of person? But you just can't do it. You don't seem to have the power. It's hard. The harder you try, the more you fail. It's because we're weak. We're helpless. We need a helper. We need a savior. So... Jesus died while we were still sinners, while we were still weak, and that was on purpose. So this is good news. Jesus isn't waiting for you to strengthen yourself in order to love you. Right? He is not waiting on you to strengthen yourself in order to love you. Some of us feel like we have got to strengthen ourselves. We've got to bolster our faith or bolster our obedience in order to get God on our side. That is the exact opposite of what the Christian gospel is. The truth is he purposely died while we were still weak. So stop pretending you're strong. The first thing you need to do is submit that you're weak and that you can't handle this. The son of God left heaven, endured a Roman cross because you couldn't handle it. So receive that as, as good news and help. The second reason it was the right time is because we were ungodly. Wait, this is where it gets fun. The Son of God shows his love for us when we were ungodly. See, that doesn't compute. If you, if you, if you haven't had the blessing of being discipled and raised as a Christian, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. That God would show his love for the ungodly. Because almost every other religion, and probably every other religion, You've got to become godly in order sort of to fit in with God and to reach God. You've got to do all these things to make yourself worthy and to become godly in order to be loved by the God of those false religions. But the true God says, no, you can't do that and you aren't like that. And so I'm going to move towards you. I'm not waiting on you to move towards me. I'm moving towards you while you're still ungodly. God is going to show his love for you. It, listen to how Paul sort of argues this. This is the question I asked you when we started. In verses seven and eight, he says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. So what he's saying is, it's hard to get someone to die for a good person, right? He says, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Now there are some people that we would be willing to die for, he says. He says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then he moves on to say that we were enemies. So it was the right time because we were ungodly. We were sinners and enemies. Sinners. No one wants to be sinners anymore. Now, 
here's what I mean by that. Everyone wants to be a sinner. Everyone wants to give in to the passions of their, their flesh and live contrary to God's law, but no one wants to admit they're sinners. No one wants to admit they're sinners. It's a good example is if you go to Starbucks or something and order a cup of coffee, there's going to be some sort of virtue signal printed on that cup of coffee. You know, it's save the whales, some sort of social justice thing. It's going to be printed on there to make you feel like you're a good person because you can't be a sinner. The last thing you can be is a sinner and a wicked person. We actually should probably have coffee cups that says, such a worm. <laughs> Totally depraved. What a wretch. <laughs> What'd you say? Kill the whales? <laughs> yes, we have killed the whales. We need to repent of that. But Jesus says the, the well don't need a physician. Those who are well don't need a doctor. It's the sick who needs a physician. And, and so, you know, it's kind of like me ignoring lower back pain for a while. And then one day I wind up locked up on the floor in the back of our church right before Sunday service because something clicked in there that wasn't supposed to click. You know, I was sick and tried to ignore it. The check engine light, we've been talking about repairing cars. You know, that check engine light, the number one way to fix that is put a piece of black tape over it, right? The sick need a physician, not the well. So if you're not sick, you don't need saving. And so Jesus came to save sinners. That was his whole point. Stop pretending you're not a sinner. Because the moment you do that, you lose any remedy to your real sickness and weakness. But we weren't just sinners, like neutral sinners who just break God's law. We're actually uh, actively rebelling against him. So we weren't just passively disobeying God, but in active rebellion against him. And that goes back to what we were talking about in Romans chapter one, that there's this knowledge of God that is inherent in humanity because we're made in his image. But what do we do? We suppress it. We push down that beach ball, right? We push it down and we fight and struggle to keep it below water, but eventually it pops back up. So we weren't um, just weak, but we were ungodly sinners and enemies against God. And so what do we take away from this? Why does God love us? It's not because you're lovely. It's not because you're precious. I don't care what you read on Instagram. God loves us because he wants to make us lovely. God loves us so that we would see his loveliness and glorify him and desire to be like him. Listen to this quote from Martin Luther. Uh, this is in 1518. This is right at the, the pinnacle of the happenings in the Protestant Reformation where there's this rediscovery and of, of the purity of the gospel. He says this, he says, the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of God loves sinners, evil persons, fools and weaklings in order to make them righteous, good, wise and strong. Rather than seeking its own good, the love of God flows forth and bestows good. Therefore, sinners are not loved because they are attractive, but they are attractive because they are loved. You see that? Sinners are not loved because they are attractive, but they are attractive because they are loved. And you gotta consider, Martin Luther, his background, his experiences as a, a monk, as a radical monk, as people would say crazy monk, because he took the holiness of God and the depths of his sins so seriously. He knew that he could never be holy as God is holy, as God demands. He, he would uh, whip himself. He would eat dung. He would spend hours in confession in order to try to make himself attractive to God until he read, the righteous shall live by faith. And, and, and that sort of light bulb moment came on and the, the mixed metaphors, the dominoes fell. And he sees that it is not that we are attractive that moves God towards us. It's the fact that God moves towards us that makes us attractive. 
And so receive that love of God. Allow him to move towards you and you embrace him. And so this is where we've been. The love of God for sinners is made manifest and demonstrated in the death of his son, Jesus Christ. The sinless, eternal son of God who died at the right time while we were weak, while we were ungodly. Not because we are attractive, but to make us attractive, to make us lovely. And when God makes a judgment, it's true. Some of you can hear a preacher say, God finds you attractive. I'm not thinking, I'm not speaking physically. Some of you say, yeah, yeah, he does. (laughs) God loves you. And you go, yeah, but he shouldn't. Are you questioning God? And when God created the world and saw and said, this is good, did the trees go, actually, I'm not. Because when God says, you are mine, you are righteous, you are forgiven, and you say to yourself and your soul, I'm not, you're questioning the judgment of God. Do you know better than God? I don't think you do. So we receive this gospel, not questioning God, but thanking God. We see the apparent contradiction. I'm a sinner. God says I'm justified, symbol justice et peccator. At the same time, justified and sinner. We we say, we take that, and rather than questioning God and wrestling in our sin and doubt, we we, we, we turn it into thanksgiving. We give thanks to God for his grace. That's what we're called to do. And so that moves us into the fruit of Christ's death. So he died for us while we were still sinners, showing his love. And so what does the love of God and the death of his son, Jesus Christ, produce in us? And this is just a few of these things. We'll come back to that question many times in the book of Romans. But in this passage, there are three fruits, three fruits of Christ's death. Justification, reconciliation, and joy. And we see this in verses 9 through 11. So justification, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now, we've talked about justification quite a bit in the last few weeks, so I'm not going to rehash that. But here's the logic of this verse. Since therefore, right, this is a logical argument that's being grounded in what has been said previously, and what's happening next. This will be called a bilinear proposition. So the statement uh, that he's about to say, the support for that statement is on both sides of the therefore. Since, what I said earlier, therefore, what I'm about to say, what is he saying? We have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him from the wrath of God. What are you talking about, Paul? I thought we were saved. How are we going to be saved again? This is what he's saying. If Christ's death, which was something that happened in our past, Jesus died in our past. If his death in our past has justified us in our past and in our present, we will also be saved by his blood at the time of future judgment. Tracking with me? I I know there's a lot of stuff happening there. Because of what Jesus did in our past, he died for us and justified us. He did that in the past. We can be confident that we will also be saved from whatever we face in the future, particularly God's wrath poured out in the final judgment. You see that? So if you have a tendency to doubt your salvation, this should be hopeful to you. Because Jesus died in the past and he's justified us in the past, how much more will he also save us in the future? So we need to talk about this term, save. Get saved. You hear this a lot. You need need to get saved. Have you been saved? Um, 
And so what does that mean? Some of us, if we grew up particularly in a, in a, a Baptist, fundamentalist Baptist context, we might have a hard time saying something like, will be saved, or I am being saved, because we would say that once saved, always saved, right? You were saved in the past, it's a one-time event. You're, you were saved. And so if I start saying something like, you will be saved, or you're being saved, you might go, wait a second, are you undermining the finished work of Christ on the cross that happened in the past? And I would say to you, no, I'm not, because the Bible uses that language. The Bible uses the, 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 the verb um, soter or sozo, um, which means saved, in all three tenses, past, present, and future, in terms of our experience of salvation and Christ's work. So what do we mean this? So we might say you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. So you have been saved. This is that objective historical event that Jesus Christ died on an actual wooden cross, shed his blood. This happened in the past, and that historical event saved you. Another aspect of this is our justification and our conversion, regeneration where the Spirit of God works in your heart and gives you new life, new birth, and you believe in God, at that moment you are justified. God uh, imputes that faith to you as righteousness. That is a have-been-saved moment for you if this has happened in your past. Another aspect of this is our ongoing salvation, which is our sanctification. We call it in theology sanctification, which is this progressive moral um, reformation that happens in your life, that you put to death sin, the old sinful habits that you used to participate in, that you begin to labor to put those away and to put on righteousness, the fruit of the Spirit. You become more like Jesus practically in your life. And this is an example of being saved in the moment, in the present. And then we have future salvation. We will be saved on that last day of judgment that we've talked about before, that when we all stand before God and have to give account of our lives, you know, it says that we have to give an account for every idle word. Every idle word that you've just thrown out there, you said without thinking, God's going to ask you to give an account for that word. Every idle word in the comment thread of something on social media, God's going to ask you to give an account for that word. And so we can have confidence because we have been saved and we are being saved that we will be saved on that day. I imagine it as something like when, when we give that account, this is totally extra biblical, but it's, go with me, it's poetry, that Jesus steps aside and wipes all that away and he stands in between us as a mediator who is perfectly righteous and says, he's mine, I've got him, he's on my tab. That's the gospel, that we will be saved on that last day. So we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And all of this is based upon the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not based upon anything you do, anything that changes in your circumstances, any of that. It's all based upon the blood of Jesus Christ. So we receive justification. And next we see very similar to justification is reconciliation. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This is an, an a fortiori argument, an argument of how much more. So think about this. The logic is this. If God saved us while we were still his enemies through the death of his son, how much more will he save us now that we're his friends, now that we're reconciled, right? It would be foolish to think that God is suddenly going to abandon us now that we're reconciled if he went to such great depths to save us when we were his enemies. Do you see? How much more will we be saved? Notice this. It says, shall we be saved by his life? Notice that we're saved by Jesus' death and his life. A lot of us may think about, you know, being saved by the death of Jesus, but have you considered that you're also saved by the life of Jesus? A couple ways in which this is true. One is in his, we call active obedience. This is his obedience to the law of God perfectly, 
obedient to God. This is the righteousness that is imputed to us in justification. But another aspect of this is his resurrected life and his session, his reigning in heaven, that life. So do you think about that? That currently you are being saved by Jesus's life. How? He is currently in heaven interceding for his people. Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is working out his will in you. I think about this, the story of Stephen um, in the book of Acts, the martyrdom of Stephen. As Stephen is drawing near to death from being stoned by the Jews, Stephen is allowed to sort of look into heaven and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father as if he's eagerly waiting to receive him. In that moment, Stephen is being saved through the life of Christ in the present tense. But we're also saved in the fact that he is resurrected and he's the first fruits of a new creation. That because he was resurrected from the grave, we will be resurrected from the grave in glorious, glorified bodies. See, eternal life isn't going to be some disembodied existence, just floating on the clouds, you know, playing harps with a bunch of naked babies all around you. Like, that is not heaven. That is not the eternal state. The eternal state is actually going to be very earthy, except without sin. I think a lot of times we have a hard time with that because we can't comprehend this world without sin. But you realize that in redemption, Christ is redeeming the world. He's not just throwing it in the trash can for some sort of disembodied life. No, he created it, called it good, came to redeem it. He came to save the world after all, right? And so he was resurrected with a real physical body that could eat and drink, fellowship with friends, and we will too. And, and that is our greatest ultimate hope is that resurrection life. And so when times are dark, times are hard, when your body is failing you, we remember if he died for us while we were enemies, how much more now that we are reconciled will he save me by his life? Right? This is very practical stuff here. This is how you apply the gospel to your everyday life. See, you have to think about, if we're going to live quorum Deo, meaning that our entire life is played out under God before his face, we have to understand how every aspect of our life is to be interpreted through this lens of Christ at the center. It's almost like you had like tinted glasses, like rose-colored glasses that tint everything you see in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what we're trying to develop, and that's what Paul is calling us to do here as well. And that leads to the last point. If that's the case, if we see our entire life through those lens, what is one of the, the primary fruits that we should expect in our lives? And it is joy. Joy. It, is, it says this at the, at the end of our passage, verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I remember one time I had to preach a sermon on joy. At our church, we were, we were going a series through the, uh, the fruit of the Spirit. And, and the one I had was joy. And, and studying joy was really joyful. It was, it was a good time. Learned a lot. But one of my favorite things from that that I'll always remember is Thomas Watson. Thomas Watson was one of the great Puritan writers and his systematic theology, um, it was called a, uh, a body of divinity, a body of divinity. It's free, public domain online, you can find it. But in, in that systematic theology, in the section on the application of redemption, another, in other words, what is applied to us through the redemption of Christ. Things like justification, sanctification, glorification, all these things that we've talked about before. One of the things he has listed in there is joy. So think about that. That means that joy is something that Christ's death, his redemption is doing to you. Like that's one of the things that it accomplishes, right? As much as the death of Christ frees you from the guilt of your sin before God, it also like applies joy to your life. And when you're expecting that, it changes things. So like 
if, if, if you're trying to like, if you're aiming at something, eventually you're going to hit it, right? And if you realize that sort of one of the targets that Christ is aiming at in your life is joy, you realize that that is something Christ is trying to do. And he's not actually, because a lot of us think that that's kind of the opposite of what he's calling us to do, right? It goes back to our grumpy God, happy God kind of thing. But he's actually trying to make us joyful. Here's Thomas Watson's definition of joy. He says, joy is setting the soul upon the top of a pinnacle. It is the cream of the sincere milk of the word. Spiritual joy is a sweet and delightful passion arising from the apprehension and feeling of some good, whereby the soul is supported under present troubles and fenced against future fear. That last sentence is very helpful. What's the purpose of joy? What is the role of joy in the Christian life? One is to support us under present troubles, but also to be a fence against future fear. Have you thought about joy being a weapon of spiritual warfare? God calls his people into a, a holy war, if you will, in the spiritual warfare, right? And one of the chief weapons is the joy of his people. Think about, think about the apostles in the book of Acts. You know, they're, they're going around preaching the, the, the gospel in all the cities. And, and one Anglican bishop said that everywhere that the apostles went, a riot broke out, which is true. You read through Acts, there are several different uh, altercations and riots in the cities. He says, but everywhere I go, people throw tea parties. And it's like, ouch, okay, we're doing something different. But think about this. They're going, people are literally trying to fight them, trying to kick them out of the city because of the message that they're preaching. They get thrown in jail. And what do they do? They rejoice. You know, he told, you know they, 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 they beat them and say, hey, stop preaching the name of Jesus. Well, what do they do? They rejoice that they're worthy uh, they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. They put him in jail. What do they do? They sing hymns and convert the jailer. It's like there's an unstoppable thing that joy in Christ does. It supports you under present troubles and it's a fence against future fear. You think about the great stories of warriors. The best warriors are jolly warriors. They're the ones who, who sit around the table while the enemy is out in the field they sit around the table with their fellow warriors and they drink a good drink and they eat a good feast and they laugh and tell jokes and they go out the next day and fight. That's what God would have us do, to be jolly warriors, to gather on Sunday evenings with your friends, to drink a good drink, to eat good food, and then get busy joyfully making war for his glory. That's what he calls us to do. Notice he says this in, in verse 11. Starts with a more than that. More than that. More than what? Well, that's one thing I ask myself. More than what? I, I think he's talking about that reconciliation and the salvation on the final day. That we have this in Christ. But more than that, it's like, what, what, what is more than that? But Paul says there's more than that. We rejoice in God. See, salvation in Christ is more than a get out of hell free card. It's a participation in the abundant life of the Trinity. God is a glorious triune being, Father, Son, and Spirit, who has existed eternally in perfect fellowship and happiness and joy. He is the jolly warrior. And when he saves us, he takes us off of the battlefield on the opposing side and brings us into his tent and around his table and welcomes us in to that feast. Salvation is more than get out of hell free, I can go do what I want. Salvation is you're welcomed into the abundant life of Father, Son, and Spirit. You're welcomed to the table. And so we rejoice. We become like our God. We, we are happy. We fight and the battles that he has given us. We rejoice in one another in his glory and his gospel. It's a glorious calling, what we have. 
that we can live all of our life, Coram Deo, before the face of God, not cowering in fear that he's going to pounce on us because he's grumpy God, but with delight and with freedom because he delights in you and he has given you freedom. He has made that judgment to make you free. And so live that way in every way. So here are the final points of application and then we'll be done. Number one, stop living under the dominion of guilt. Guilt is a horrible master. Guilt is paralyzing and crippling, which is why it's the chief weapon in the enemy's hands. That's why the devil in your flesh is always up in your ear, calling out the sins that's right in the back of your head that won't go away. You know you should be guilty about this. You should be ashamed of this. You know better than this. You did it again, and you call yourself a Christian? Stop living under dominion of guilt. Trust the judgment of God that fell upon his son. Probably in the near future, I'll pull out this, another quote from Luther, where he talks about using the condemnation of the devil as the sword by which you cut his throat. Because when the devil comes in your ear saying, you are a sinner and therefore damned, I say, but no, I have a savior who died for sinners. So when you call me a sinner, it doesn't scare me, it actually comforts me because there is a savior who upon his shoulders lay all my sin. So stop living under the dominion of guilt. Confess your sin. Stop harboring it. That's why every week we have this opportunity to walk through the law of God, to confess our sin to the Lord. And once it's confessed, it's atoned for in the blood of Jesus Christ. You don't have to live in the guilt of it anymore. Walk in joy, walk in freedom. Number two, let joy be your support in present troubles and offense against future fear. This is the, the, the main application here because you would think it'd be easy but it's not. We often find things to complain about, to be grumpy about. We need to be reminded that God has given us everything to be joyful about. So let joy be your support in present troubles and offense against future fear. Five subpoints. Number one, how do we do this? How do we do this? Coram Deo, Christian Fellowship, how do we do this? Let joy be our support and offense. One, Feast with friends. Find every opportunity to show extravagant joy. Feast with friends. Make these Sabbath dinners a priority. Welcome people into your homes, your apartments, your dorms. Even though you're poor, you can both eat ramen together. Like, feast with friends. Gather in the tents to be sent out to fight. Number two, sing loud. One of God's main means of increasing joy as his people is through corporate singing, through singing together. So when we sing the hymns, when we gather together, sing loudly. Enjoy one another's voices and uh, let this be a support to your soul. Number three, shout your amens. What I mean with this, let your agreement with the word of God, not just in worship be known, but in the world be known right? Don't hide your light in the bushel. No, let it shine, right? Shout your amens. Defend the cause of Christ where you're um, giving opportunity, but also in worship. That we, when we participate in the liturgy, that we do so with boldness, with gusto, and with excitement. Number four, love your enemies while laughing at their slander. Love your enemies while laughing at their slander. Like we've talked about this. The moment we go proclaiming the gospel, what do we have to do? We talked about this. No one wants to be sinners. Everyone wants the virtue signal cup. But what we do is we start handing out the cup that says, you're a wretch. People are offended. They slander you. They call you a racist. They call you a bigot. They call you a, a, a misogynist. They call you narrow-minded ignorant, anti-gay. Love your enemies. 
the chief way we love them is we give them the gospel. We don't deny the gospel to them by avoiding their slander. We give them the gospel and we chuckle when they slander at us. You know, you don't know the half of it. Because that type of attitude cannot be defeated. Someone slanders you and you get defensive. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, you've lost. But if you can chuckle and you can laugh and you can let it roll off your back and you can press on proclaiming Christ, you, you have won the battle. Even if they don't repent and convert on that spot, you have won the battle. You've been faithful to your Lord. So love your enemies while laughing at their slander. And number five, preach Christ and him crucified. This will be your joy. We glory in his glory, as we said last week. We glory in his glory. So when we proclaim Christ and him crucified and nothing else, Paul told the Corinthians, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. When he is our fear, he is our dread, he is our boasts, he will be our joy. And so um, that's the sermon. That's Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. And so let's pray and ask God to apply this word to our hearts. So God, we do come to you right now um, and ask you to do that work, that you apply this word to our hearts, that you produce in us the application of the redemption purchased by the blood of your son, which is joy. God, that we would be confident in your forgiveness, that we would live as free people, that we would not be enslaved to guilt, but we would live in righteousness, that we would keep short records of sin against one another and with you, that we'd be quick to confess, that we'd be quick to rejoice and feast with friends and that we would sing loudly and we would shout our amens and we would love our enemies even when they slander us. And Lord, we pray that we would know Christ and him crucified and that he would be our boast, both in word and deed. And we ask you to do this now in Jesus' name. Amen.